0: STEMQ New England Northwest brings together expertise in science, technology, engineering and mathematics from across the region. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and here on the STEMQ podcast, you'll be hearing from leaders in industry, community, government and universities about the groundbreaking innovations that are happening right here in regional New South Wales. This podcast is recorded on Aniwan country at the University of New England in Armidale. Welcome back to Stories of STEM Q. This episode, I'm joined by Casey Budd from B and W Rural and Mori. Casey, thanks so much for joining me.
1: No worries, James. Thanks
0: for having me. Now you're an agronomist, and I guess the my first question is for people that haven't heard of agronomists or haven't heard that word before: what is it? Yeah, so I guess in a nutshell, um, agronomists um,
1: for me is working with farmers and advising them on what crops to grow, how to grow them, and trying to do it most efficiently.
0: Uh, based on what? Based on uh, the, the the land they have or equipment they have? Well, How are you making these assessments?
1: Yeah, I guess uh, it's very individual. So depending on the farmer, uh, depending on the capability of their land, um, themselves as farmers, the machinery um, and contractors available to them, uh, there's a lot of factors that go into it and, and we take all that into consideration when... Trying to get the most out of each each farm,
0: and does that mean you need to s- specialize in a particular type of agriculture? I mean, can an agronomist do everything, or do you need to specialize in plant production versus livestock, that kind of thing?
1: Uh, yes and no. So I uh, I studied a Bachelor of Agriculture at UNE, and I majored in plant production, but I also know a lot of um, colleagues that have have gone down the rural science uh, or ag path and majored in animal production and then gone into agronomy from there. So, uh, yeah, there's nothing really too specific. It's more um, specialised once you start on the job and you sort of work out what crops you do and and don't like and and go down that path instead.
0: And so when you're doing this, what are clients sort of coming to you with? Are they looking for a a business to be managed or are they looking for the actual crop and stocks to be managed where do you where do you even start so normally uh, a farmer that's
1: coming to me um, is looking for just advice so that might be checking the crop every week for them and giving them advice on when to plant how to plant it uh, when what to spray it with if it needs spraying um, what fertilizer inputs it needs whether they're organic whether they're not organic um, yeah right through to harvest and We do have a little bit of input into, you know, marketing, but that's typically the extent of the agronomy side. So, yeah, just just providing consulting advice.
0: And you're working for B&W Rural. They do all sorts of things. Uh, Agronomy is just sort of one of their services. How does it fit into everything else the company does?
1: Yeah, so I, I guess essentially we're a farm supplies business, so we have a lot of merchandise. We supply everything from fencing through to, um, shuttles of herbicide and pesticides and fertilizers and, and all that sort of farm input side of things. So we've got that side of the business. And then to complement that, uh, we have a number of agronomists at each of our branches that provide advice to farmers. Um, and we do that through a, um, a service model business and also as a consulting business as well.
0: And I imagine that the kind of relationships you have with farmers, they're Pretty long term; they're not just sort of ducking in once or twice for some advice.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Most of our clients um, have been with us for a number of years, um, and each client, you know, has their own agronomist, and, and we've built that relationship over a number of years. So, typically, we don't see you know a lot of turnover. Uh, once a client comes to us, they normally stick around for the long term, um, and yeah, that's what we sort of aim for. We want to be working together for a long time because it's not really a a quick uh, quick walk-in, walk-out job.
0: Being based in Moree, I imagine you have lots of uh, clients and, and businesses that you manage that are uh, somewhat unique to the region. What's what's in Moree? Is it cattle country, cotton country? What's, what's there? So
1: we're pretty fortunate. We've got a little bit of everything. Um, our main client base at B&W is predominantly broadacre cropping and cotton, uh, so predominantly irrigated cotton as well. So that's our, our core business. Um, and then to complement that, we also support um, growers that have pecans and citrus and, and livestock as well. So we're a pretty diverse region. We're very blessed in that
0: sense. I mean, not being in agriculture myself, my, my understanding of how to work is pretty limited, but I do know it's a pretty high-stakes business. There's sort of huge amounts of... Money being invested uh, that will pay off sometime in the future, but there's a lot of risk involved. Um, what are your stress levels like dealing with these businesses? <laughs>
1: I mean, in the last couple of years, it hasn't been too bad because uh, we've we've had the rainfall to go with it, and farming, you know, is largely rainfall driven. Uh, we've definitely been challenged, you know, with the price of land. So people trying to get into farms or expand their existing farms that's been a bit of a challenge um but for the rest of them you know the growth in the asset has been a good thing um and then yeah on top of that obviously we've got increasing input costs as well so that's that's another challenge that we face especially this year um but yeah that's all part of it i mean every business has their elements of risk um it's just yeah this this is ours we're largely driven by the environment and, and commodity pricing
0: I mean, it's good to hear that the past couple of years have been pretty good because of the recent rain. But I mean, before that, it was droughts and then bushfires and then floods. I mean, how do you go about, I guess, making predictions about the future? Everything seems so uncertain, really.
1: Yeah. So I guess that's the hard part. I mean, we have had several years of drought before, you know, the last couple of years and to an extent. Um, a, a lot of farmers manage that very well and that is that is part of the risk equation. We don't expect to get you know, a fantastic crop year in, year out. There are going to be tough years um, and most people have been around long enough to realise that or they have advisors to help them manage those risks. So yeah, it's, it's not, not as challenging as it sort of sounds and certainly not as scary as it can be in the media at times. It's just being aware of those risks and controlling what you can and, and getting around what you can't.
0: You were actually awarded, uh, agronomists of the year, uh, recently. What makes you agronomist of the year? Who, who selects this? Uh, that's a good question, mate. Um, yeah, so I was the
1: agronomist of the year at the summer grains conference in 2019. So I was nominated, um, by someone. I, I still don't really know who nominated me. Um, and then I guess it's up to the uh, selection committee to determine, I guess, who is who is the uh, winner. So I'm, I'm not too sure how or why I became the <laughs> agronomist of the year, but yeah, it's certainly a humbling recognition and, and nice to know that your clients do appreciate the work that you put in. I
0: mean, based on it being a sort of panel decision, obviously they were looking for, I don't know, letters of support or talking to clients or is it all just a a hidden secret
1: yeah as as far as i know they uh they talk to a couple of clients um and obviously you know that that dictates a lot of our success as an agronomist if you have happy clients nine times out of ten you're doing a good job and and i guess that that keeps more clients coming in as well so that that's a huge component but also you know industry personnel researchers employers people that you work with outside of that to provide those agronomic services, they all come into it as well. So, yeah, certainly a big industry and and lots of different people to talk to.
0: I guess I want to ask how one becomes a successful agronomist. I mean, did you grow up in the country yourself?
1: Yeah, so I've uh, I've lived in town my whole life, but um, I was quite fortunate enough to grow up around a lot of farms. So my father's an agronomist as well and has been for 35 years now. Um, so I learned a lot from him as a kid, which is sort of interesting because I didn't picture myself doing agronomy at all. It's, um, I guess as a kid, it's a lot of driving around. You don't really know what you're looking at. Uh, it wasn't until I sort of left school and did a bit of work experience, um, trying to make a bit of money that I actually started doing a bit of, um, work for other agronomists. And yeah, from there, my passion sort of really grew. And it's something that I was fortunate enough to come quite naturally to me. Um, and i guess yeah pursuing that passion has sort of led to led me to where i am today and and fortunately yeah built building the relationships that i have with the clients that i work with
0: so you said you didn't really know you wanted to get into agronomy at first where did you start then did say at the end of end of high school you're looking at university gr- degrees how do you how do you decide
1: yeah so i guess uh, year 11 and 12 you know they're they're pretty big years at school and you know it's all doom and gloom your life's going to be over if you don't work out what you want to do so um yeah i was fortunate enough i did some work experience uh, i think in year 10 and 11 um doing some cotton checking and things like that and yeah from there yeah i really enjoyed that and that sort of turned me you know down the path of selecting agronomy at university um I wasn't the best student at school, so I actually got into university through pre-selection at UNE, uh, which was an absolute lifesaver for me. Um, It was a little bit tougher. I did have to work a lot harder than a lot of other students that did a lot better at school. Um, But, yeah, I, I ended up doing a lot better than I thought I would because I was interested in what I was studying.
0: And then once you're learning this stuff, how much of it is actually learning, you know, plant and animal science as opposed to learning you know, economics and the business side of things? Or is it all a bit hard to uh, disentangle?
1: Yeah, I mean, they definitely go hand in hand. You know, once you leave university, you can't really have one without the other. I mean, at the end of the day, farmers are running a business um, and you're just a part of that business. So I'm fortunate enough to have done an ag degree and a business degree. So I went back to complete my Master of Business Administration a few years after I completed my first degree and yeah, that really that really rounded things out for me and gave me an understanding of farms at a business level, not just an agronomic level because I found, you know, when I first left uni and I started working as an agronomist full-time, I had clients that would make decisions that weren't necessarily the right agronomic decisions um, and I found that quite frustrating because I didn't understand why. So, it was good to go back and do that business degree and see some of the other drivers um, behind decision-making. So it made a lot of those decisions that weren't necessarily great from an agronomic perspective uh, look a lot better from a farm business perspective.
0: I guess that kind of prompted my next question. Do you find that farmers are uh, good at one side of the business and not the other, and that's why they kind of need that external support?
1: I think it depends on the farmer. I mean, some, everyone you know, has their preferences and certainly that is the case for some, but we've got quite a lot of well-rounded business people out there that, that just want to really you know, engage someone else to provide them the most up-to-date advice that they can get um, because it's very difficult running a business to be across absolutely everything. So, you know, they've got an accountant, they've got a solicitor, uh, they've got an agronomist, and they rely heavily on those people to provide the right advice for their business.
0: And so what does a day in the, I guess, what does a day for you look like? Are you at the desk crunching numbers? Are you at farms? What What's a day in the life of an agronomist?
1: So we typically kick off the day uh, on farm. So we we do a lot of driving. Um, a lot of time is spent on farm and then often, you know, in the afternoon, We'll follow that up, writing recommendations and reports um, and sending that sort of paperwork side of things out to growers. But, yeah, it's it's largely farm-based. Probably 80% of our time is spent on farm looking at crops, um, looking at weeds, reviewing nutrition um,
0: programs and, and things like that. And you said that your father was an agronomist and you sort of grew up in the field without even noticing it. Even though you've only had a, a particular amount of time in your career itself, I imagine you've got a bit of perspective on how things have changed over time. I mean, how how have you seen farming change in in your eyes?
1: Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question because agronomy fundamentally hasn't changed, but a lot of tools that we have as agronomists now certainly have. So you know, back in the day, you might be spending all day on farm and you'll come home and write up your recommendations on the computer at night and and fax them out to growers in the morning. Whereas, you know, now I go out, I look at a paddock, I can do a recommendation on my iPad while I'm in the paddock, email that straight to the grower and then follow up with a phone call while I'm driving to the next paddock. So it has has certainly changed the way that we do business, um, but it hasn't hasn't really changed the actual crux of the agronomy, so to speak. So we're, we're still looking at uh, crops. You know, we've still got to be on farm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of tools coming through like satellite imagery and and sensors and all the ag tech stuff that's coming through. But at the end of the day, fundamentally, we still need to be on farm. We still need to be physically checking crops, Um there's no, there's no getting around that. So yeah, that, that's the bones of our business.
0: And what about for the farmers themselves? What have you seen change for their practices?
1: I think uh, the biggest change has probably been, I guess, in in my career and and seeing farming growing up, the shift from conventional farming to no-till systems. So conservation farming methods being implemented in an effort to, preserve our soils and build nutrition and and look after soil structure and things like that that's probably been the biggest change um and that's come through you know not only cultural change in farming and the introduction of you know herbicides and reliable herbicides that are a lot safer but also changes in machinery and and that sort of availability as well so a a grower now can send someone out to spray a farm in a day. It might have taken them a week to spray it, you know, 15 or 20 years ago with a different machine.
0: This use of technology in farming, we often hear of it referred to as precision agriculture. And I don't know, I remember hearing about this and was promised that everything would be watered by drones and we would have robot self-driving tractors and all that kind of stuff. What does it actually look like in practice?
1: (laughs) that's a that's an interesting one because i guess i've come to hate the term precision agriculture um you know it turns a lot of growers off Uh, i think there's a lot of hype around it uh, when in the reality you know in our day-to-day precision ag is just adding technology tools into what we do every day to try and get a more efficient better outcome
0: why do you think Growers don't like it. What what do they hear when they hear the words precision agriculture?
1: So I guess I've got a lot, a lot of growers that when you mention precision agriculture to them, they think, oh, you know, it's, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be fancy. It's going to be hard to implement into my business when the reality is that I could just be taking the data out of their tractor to help them put fertilizer in a better spot next time they go back into that paddock. So I think a lot of it... You know, there's a lot of hype around precision agriculture and because it is relatively new still, people don't really understand that. Uh, I think if you break it down to to what it actually is and what it achieves, you know, it gives people a different perspective and, and they're a lot more accepting of that. It's a lot more palatable.
0: And do you think we've still got a fair way to go? Do you expect to see robot tractors and, and watering drones anytime in the future or is it... Uh, heading in different directions.
1: Um, I'm not too sure about the watering drones, but I think, uh, yeah, I think the autonomous tractors aren't too far off. Um, especially with a lot of the technology that we're seeing in them now, they definitely have the capacity in the machines to go autonomous. I think it's just the the liability side of things, and um, yeah, the the networks that we have across Australia aren't necessarily that reliable as well, so if you're relying on a tractor to um, drive itself and you lose signal and all of a sudden you don't know where your tractor is or it doesn't know where it is, you know, that that's the biggest constraint for us. And I think until uh, machinery providers can overcome those hurdles,
0: um, you know, we're sort of just stuck in limbo until then. And I guess it doesn't necessarily need to go in that way. I mean, in, depending on what type of things you're growing I'm imagining that you know, low-tech solutions could just work as well a lot of the time, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think you know a lot of uh, the low-hanging fruit is using what we've already got to uh, to get a better outcome, and and I think that's often overlooked because people think if they're going to do precision agriculture, they need to do the whole hog. When they don't, they could start with something already in their business, and I think you know the best example of that. A lot of people have newer, up to date tractors now that are collecting a lot of data, often without people even realising. Uh, so a lot of farmers have a lot of elevation data, uh, fuel usage data, you know that sort of information from an agronomic perspective is quite helpful because if you look at a fuel usage data map, um, often that will correlate pretty pretty closely to soil types and different soil constraints. So we can use that to, um, yeah, make better decisions on varieties, fertiliser placement, all those sort of things. So often it's just, um, yeah, starting starting with what you've got and trying to find solutions to use that a bit smarter without, without adding
0: expense. And having this sort of broad overview of... Uh farm business practices It hasn't uh tempted you to go off and, and start your own hobby farm or anything
1: oh look i don't think so i think i'm pretty fortunate enough in my role to work with such a wide range of farmers um so i'm not just looking at the same crop or the same farm day in day out i get to see something different every day uh, and i really love that variety so yeah i mean long term i would like to to get into my own farm but yeah, for now I'm I'm quite excited about seeing what everyone's up to and and learning from, you know, what everyone else is doing as well because
0: each farm is so different. And given that a theme of this conversation has been changed, do you think that the advances we've seen in farming and the different techniques are actually making more types of uh, agricultural available to us? I mean, we we go straight to the cliches of you know, sheep and cattle and and cotton. But are the types of things we can produce changing as well or, or diversifying?
1: I think, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot more diversity now, you know, and I think that's that's probably come with, you know, globalization and the rise of social media. You know, there's a lot more transparency available to consumers now, and I think that's driving a lot of the niche markets um, and niche products. So you've got growers that are then able to value-add you know, direct from farm and, and go direct to consumers in that sense. So, so that's been really interesting. And, you know, we've got growers out here in classic cotton country wanting to grow quinoa and, and all those sort of specialty crops. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely changing. And it, I think, um, yeah, as consumers start to have more of a say in where their food comes from and, and what they actually want from that, I think that'll, that'll continue to change.
0: And the last couple of years and, and right now continues to be a bit of a reminder about how supply chains work uh, both domestically and, and globally. Do you think we will see a shift towards more local production and local supplying?
1: I certainly hope so. Um, but, yeah, we are we are definitely constrained. You know, we don't have a lot of that... The manufacturing facilities um, and the labour available to finish a lot of the products that we we actually grow in Australia. So a lot of that is done offshore. So I think you know, long term, if if that was to come back, you know, obviously people would be looking to spend a bit more for those products. And I think there's certainly niche markets where that's already the case. Um, you know, and if you look at uh, cotton, for example, and the traceability in that industry. You know, that's, that's been a bit of a game changer. But ultimately, most of the textile manufacturing is still done offshore and then brought back into the country. So, yeah, I, th- I think definitely potential, but there's certainly a lot of constraints to overcome there as well. And I think, you know, with the world the way it is at the moment, it's certainly highlighted a lot of those supply chain issues. Uh, but whether we can overcome that, you know, in the medium to long term, yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% sure and I
0: guess to finish things up, I'm interested to know what's in the future for you. You know, now that you're an established award winning agronomist, uh, are, are you just getting busy getting the same sort of work done, or, or is there big plans for the future?
1: Oh, it's, it's pretty much business as usual, mate. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Um, I plan to be doing it for a long time. And yeah, hopefully my clients stay happy and I'll keep working with them. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing.
0: It's good to hear. Casey, thanks so much for joining me.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining me here on the STEMQ podcast. Stay tuned to hear more stories as we work to empower STEM innovation through the STEMQ precinct.